Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Hello and welcome. We're here today with Rachel Amado Bortnik, and she created Ladino Comunita. And uh, we're going to understand a little bit what that is. I'm here today with Dahlia as well. So you get two of us. And uh, we have Rachel with us too. So, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? I was born and raised in Izmir, Turkey. And uh, I came to the United States first in 1958 to college with a full scholarship in, uh, in mid-America. <laughs> that is, in, it was Lindenwood College at the time. Now it's Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri. My first time out of my city and um, in Turkey into mid-America. Uh, so I, I have a, a bachelor's degree in chemistry from there that I did not like <laughs> what I saw of America. Um, so uh, anyway, um, long story short, I met uh, my husband-to-be, but on condition that we get married in Turkey, when, where my family was, and we did. We went you to took your husband from Missouri to Turkey? Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One reason was that he was also graduating from uh, Washington University in St. Louis and as an architect, and he had agreed to work in Holland uh, for a professor. And so uh, I agreed to go to Holland. So in other words, I have a very long history, so I'm not going to tell you everything, but we did live in Holland and then in Israel, and then we came back to Kansas City, which is where he's from, and um, I've been practically in the United States ever since, which is over 50 years now, and uh, we now live in Dallas, Texas. I actually uh, changed my profession and became a teacher of English as a second language. Having grown up in, uh, in Turkey, in a Jewish, predominantly Jewish neighborhood, our language was Judeo-Spanish or Ladino, and uh, that is my first language. I learned Turkish only later. So uh, being uh, away from home, for in places where they had, including the United States, where people had n never heard of being a Sephardic Jew and didn't, didn't believe that um, I could be Jewish, really. I mean, uh, the first family I met, uh, they asked me if I spoke Jewish, and I said, do you mean Spanish? <laughs> and they said, what, you know? Uh, and, and of course, with the last name of Amado, uh, 
they really doubted that I could be Jewish. You know, I never had, I asked, I was there the first Shabbat and they served these white balls. And I said, <laughs> what is this? And uh, they could So then they knew you weren't Jewish, right? Because you didn't know right, what the photo fish was. <laughs> right, exactly. I said, well, our fish looks like a fish, you know. <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up on the seashore, but we just ate fish a lot. <laughs> you know, none of it looked like that. So anyway, um, that kind of thing repeated itself many, many times over the years, where people had, not, uh, had no idea that there were Jews in Turkey, that uh, in, in college, even where they asked me where Turkey was, you know, they had never heard of it. That's the, the American thing, yeah. You know, and so anyway, even my mother-in-law, of course, my father is Ashkenazi, my husband is Ashkenazi, and my mother-in-law, both my parents-in-law were from Russia, uh, actually like Ukraine. My mother-in-law, who, who was wonderful, but uh, it would always slip, you know, Rachel, Jewish people say, and then she would say something about in Yiddish. And I say, I would repeat, Mama, please don't say Jewish people. <laughs> Ashkenazic people say that. <laughs> you know, or, or Jewish people put uh, sugar in this and the, and the <laughs> You know, not all Jewish people, Mama. Very much so. <laughs> that kind of thing. So that is culturally, but also linguistically. And that's the area where I'm most busy now. I had no idea that our language was in danger. You know, that our Jewish language, and that is uh, uh, the uh, what is being called Ladino now, and I do like that name. Uh, you grew up, it was Judeo-Spanish or? No, Spanish. Espanol. Yeah, Espanol. But although some people called it Judeo or Judesmo, meaning Jewish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but my father never uh, liked those terms and uh, he always, we always called it Espanol. <laughs> you said you really lived in a Jewish neighborhood in um, Izmir. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we lived just a few doors down from the biggest synagogue, the biggest and newest synagogue in Izmir. And uh, it's still there. And uh, I recommend anybody who goes to Turkey or stops by to see the ruins of Ephesus or something to take a trip to Izmir and that neighborhood and look for the Bet Israel synagogue. We live just a few doors down from it. Not everybody was Jewish. We had neighbors who were uh, Muslims, and we had one neighbor who was Christian, um, originally from France, interestingly. But anyway, it was mostly Jewish. I mean, the, the shopkeepers were that we dealt with, most of them were Jewish. Our grocer, Monsieur Vitali, and, and our greengrocer, uh, the guy who, the itinerant vendors that came by, the kosher butcher who sent the uh, the little uh, worker, the young man to take our orders. Everybody's our language was the Spanish, 
So yeah. you didn't interact with the Muslims around you? Yes, or? yes, we did. We did. Oh. We did. We had very good relations, but not close. You know, we didn't uh, like eat at each other's house or anything. <laughs> um, you know, our uh, we didn't have an oven at home, so our things to be baked um, always we took to the uh, community oven owned by a Turk, you know, a Muslim Turk, and. Um, uh, the the Turks, many of the Turks who lived around us understood our Spanish because it was, you know, it was heard in the street. <laughs> I mean, we yelled from our balcony down in Ladino to the neighbor, <laughs> my mother would yell. You know, it was, uh, it was just a very, very Jewish neighborhood. And uh, being Jewish just meant uh, that we all, bought from the kosher butcher. We all shopped in the, in the same places, but patronized Jewish stores, you know, that kind of thing. It was and a, was your school Jewish as well? Oh, yes. I forgot to tell you. Yes. So, uh, across the street from the synagogue was the Beneberit school. In English, you would say Bnebris, but <laughs> yeah, we called it Beneberit. Uh, it was the, an elementary school. It, we were told that at one time it was a high school, but uh, at my time it was only an elementary school. And uh, I went there. Uh, it was so close that I came home for lunch. <laughs> I mean, we played in Ladino. We fought in Ladino with our friends. It was our language, although the classes were in Turkish, you know, they okay. were inside the and did classroom. you learn to read and write Hebrew? Uh, yes, just to read and write, barely. I mean, very little Hebrew. It wasn't much, very serious. It just read and write, basically, like you say. Women didn't go to the synagogue much. Oh. It was sort of the main, the man's, <clears throat> the men's world. Some women did, some, especially older women. You know, the women were separate. They sat on yeah. in the women's section up, up on top. The home was uh, the world of the woman, <laughs> really. Uh, until fourth grade, I attended Beneberit School. Uh, in fourth grade, I failed my arithmetic class <laughs> and um, uh, my mother took me out of that school it really was not a very good school <laughs> in retrospect my mother took me out of that school and enrolled me in a turkish public school which was not too far but i had to take the tram we had trams running on the street uh, and uh, I, and it was I, okay for a young girl to take the tram by herself Oh, yeah. Not only that, but there were many Jewish people who went to that school also. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have photographs of our classes out of about 30, 32 people in uh, my class in the Turkish public school, 10 were Jewish. And not only that, once I went uh, to the Turkish public school, we had such a nice and good teacher that I became her best student. And my best class was arithmetic math. After the fifth grade there, I went to the American school. The American school uh, was a private school that you had to pass a test to enter. It was quite competitive. My father 
was one of these rare people who knew English. He worked at the American Tobacco Company in Izmir. He thought that French, which had been the uh, language of the learned people among the Jews, was going out of style and that English was coming in. And he said, try, you know, if you pass the test, we'll, we'll manage. Because my father was just a worker. Uh, he was uh, like an accountant at the American Tobacco Company. He said, I should try the, to go to the American school. I, and I did. I knew nothing. He taught me to count up to 10 in English just in case before I took the test. But as it turns out, they don't, didn't ask anything about English in the test. Uh, you know, it was just a general test. I don't know, even remember what they asked, but I passed the test. So I enrolled in the school and that was one year of preparatory where they taught you some English and uh, mostly English songs in English and this. And then three years of middle school and four years of high school, which um, ended up being the equivalent of junior college or, you know, the first two years of college here. So I was able to finish, thank God, the, the college here in two years. <laughs> yeah. You went from a Jewish school to a Muslim school to, I'm assuming, a Christian school if it was... Exactly. It was, it was uh, sponsored by... A, a Christian uh, organization in the United States. It had been founded during Ottoman, uh, the times of the Ottoman Empire by uh, missionaries. But in the Turkish Republic, they were not allowed to do any missionary work. It was outlawed. Uh, so, so it became just a secular school. And um, they imported teachers from the United States and our principal was American, but there was a vice principal who was a Turkish Muslim. Most of our teachers were American. As the years progressed, we had more and more subjects in English, other than just English language or English literature right. or American literature eventually, you know, all those things. Uh, things like biology, astronomy, uh, <laughs> I don't know, all kinds of things. Uh, everything was in English. Um, taught by Americans, uh, except, uh, you know, things like Turkish literature and uh, Turkish language and Turkish history. Those were taught by Turkish Muslims, you know. To... And so you, your Jewish education stopped in fourth grade then? I mean, home was Jewish. <laughs> My Jewish education was home. You know, Shabbat, the Kiddush and Shabbat, you know, and waiting for the men to come from Tefillah, as we say, you know, mm -hmm. in the mornings and uh, things like that. You know, it was a Jewish life. That didn't stop. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And then you come to America and you have to be this representative of this Judaism. That nobody had heard of. Well, I did. I did want to ask about um, also, your, I guess, your exposure to other Jews, maybe, or even based on your uh, description that you said you spoke, you 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 called it Espanol. Um, did you ever come in contact with maybe Spanish tourists and realize that it's not the same Spanish? Or yes, yes, of course, yes. Ashkenazi Jews. <laughs> not only that, but my mother, who was one of eight siblings, one of the sisters 
lived in uh, Barcelona, Spain. She had, she had um, I had never met her. I met her the first time on my way to, no, she came, uh, excuse me, when I was 14 years old, she and another sister from America came to visit the family. I mean, until 14 years old, I had never seen these two aunts. Of course, my aunt from Barcelona, she, she knew the Ladino version right. of our Spanish, but still sometimes she would say, me, you know, and, and uh, I realized that uh, it's, they speak differently. And before that, I'm, you may be interested in this. I, we had no, I had no idea, we children really in general, had no idea why we spoke Spanish. Until one day as a child, I asked my father, I said, why, why do we speak Spanish? And she said, because our ancestors came from Spain. That was my historical education about our roots. I didn't know much at all. It's only when I came to America and I, I had to learn myself. I didn't know that, or I didn't think maybe, I don't think I had heard the word Sephardic. We were just Jews, you know? If everybody it, around you is the same, right? you're just and Jews. So, <laughs> so when I, from college, I wrote to my father, I said, why the, all these Jewish people that I'm eating, meeting, they don't believe that I am Jewish. They keep telling me the same thing. How can you be Jewish if you don't know Yiddish or you don't know gefilte fish and, uh, you know, and all these things? And he said to me, tell them that you are a Sephardic Jew. That's when I really realized that why I was Sephardic. Before then, I just thought I was a Jew from Turkey, you know, just Jewish. Actually, he told me he, he learned English from the British who were in Izmir. It was an option in the Talmud Torah school, which he attended to learn English, and he chose to learn English. You know, it's, uh, yeah, my father knew seven languages. And he only had an eighth grade education, you know, in the Talmud Torah school. What was the difference between the Talmud Torah and the Bay Brith? The Talmud Torah was in the old section of Izmir. It was still in existence when I was a child. And the people in that area uh, still went to Talmud Torah. Actually, Talmud Torah had combined with uh, la the Alliance schools. Uh, I don't know if you know about the Alliance School. Of course, yeah. I think most of our listeners know about it. Yeah, yeah right. Especially after the State of Israel, mm -hmm. most Jews of Izmir from the old Izmir. Izmir's center, what is now the commercial center, was also the site of the first settlement of the Sephardic Jews, uh, the Jewish area. And so there were still Jews there when I was a child. But after the, um, the formation of the State of Israel, almost the entire population of that area went to Israel. They were more modest, even very poor Jews. In fact, there were many uh, beggars, Jewish beggars that came around, especially on Friday, um, to Jewish homes begging. 
So uh, most of those people, almost all of them, went to Israel. I remember those days of waiting for the ship. Uh, in fact, I'm one of those families with my aunt and her family. And I waited with them in the port for the boat to come from Istanbul and pick them up. It was a very unorganized, awful scene. <laughs> it's what seemed like thousands of people waiting at the port. And it wasn't like today where you get a ticket and you, they reserve your seat and your room and so on. Nothing. It was the ship would come from Istanbul. If they had any room, they would stop and they would just take a certain number of people. And you never know if you would be getting on this ship or if you had to uh -oh. wait a few days for the next ship. It was that kind of chaotic thing. And and so I remember I got sunburned waiting with my <laughs> the tents, you know, makeshift tents that they made uh, around the port during those big Aliyah days. It was like thousands of people were leaving from mostly from that old area. But where we lived was along the seashore and it was a newer area. That's why I said the, uh, the Bet Israel synagogue was the new synagogue at the time. Now they have a newer one, and yet the third section of Izmir, where the Jews have moved to, the remaining Jews, now there are maybe a thousand, maybe Do less. Do you still have family there? Yeah, relatives. Mm -hmm. Relatives and friends, and even my, my uh, classmates from the American school get together for me every time I go there. It's, it's very nice. We're still in touch. We have a WhatsApp group uh, with my Turkish friends. Yeah. So you're going to America and you're being corrected in your Judaism and you're being told, you know, whether you're Jewish or not, not exactly sure. And so I know this is many years later, but you decided to stand up for yourself and show the world. Exactly. I used to be very shy because I always felt um, like, People, uh, I had nothing in common with anybody, not with Jews, not with non-Jews in America. Uh, and so I, I used to be very shy. Well, actually, one thing happened. Uh, um, I, uh, my mother came to visit me in 1976 after my father died. And um, she, uh, 73, actually, the end of 73. And uh, uh, a neighbor came and heard me speaking with my mother in Spanish. And he said, a Jewish neighbor in St. Louis, uh, and he said, oh, you're speaking Ladino. I thought that was a dead language. Wow. And I said, that's terrible, you know? Huh? I said, it's not, you just heard us speaking. How can you <laughs> say it's a dead language? So as it turns out, there was an Israeli couple in our synagogue. We belonged, because I had three children by then, each one born in a different country. But anyway, I had three children. We belonged to a conservative synagogue there in St. Louis. And uh, an Israeli couple who was there, and we had a wonderful rabbi. Rabbi Lipnick, may he rest in peace. 
he uh, he was very learned man, and he used the Sephardic pronunciation in the synagogue at that time. And uh, and also this Israeli couple and he decided to have what they called a Sephardic kala, a we- weekend of Sephardic events in the synagogue. This man and I uh, got together and organized. And it was interesting because the rabbi, Rabbi Lipnik, said uh, that he was going to ask the Sephardic rabbi from Philadelphia to come and talk and and conduct the services. And um, uh, the rabbi who came was a rabbi Matzliach and a very Sephardic name. And it turned out he was from India. He did not speak Ladino. So that was my first exposure to people who call themselves Sephardic, but they're not Ladino speakers. I introduced, you know, I helped with the cooking for the things and, uh, and told my story and so on. So that was my first involvement. And I was very happy to do it because finally, some people were interested in finding out about what Sephardic Jews were, you know, it was, it was my first effort to come out of my shell and say something about who I am. So that was in whatever, 1978 or something. I have the things still from that uh, event, from that kala. And I had belonged to Hadassah and so on. Uh, and so I went um, to the first Hadassah women's luncheon kind of thing. And I didn't know anybody. So um, we're sitting in those round tables that, you know, eight or ten mm-hmm. people around. <clears throat> and uh, we're introducing ourselves. And this one lady next to me introduces herself as Paulette Sebi, and she has an accent. And after we went around, I said, Paulette, are you French? I knew very well she wasn't French from her accent. Uh, and she said, no, I'm from Greece. And I immediately said, hablas espanol? Do you speak Spanish? And she said, of course, you know, seguro. And we started speaking in Ladino. That was (laughs) the first time I met a Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jew. And you must have both been very happy at that point. (laughs) Yeah, well, she had a circle of her own, of most of them survivors of the Holocaust from Salonika and other places in Greece. After a while, uh, we were started getting together, you know, I met everybody in their circle, and we spoke Ladino among us. And uh, every time, you know, we were at each other's homes. And I said, we have to form a group, there must be other people around that, uh, that speak it. So and to make a very long story short, I contacted the uh, St. Louis Jewish Light, which was the newspaper at the time. I'm not St. Louis, the San Francisco, San Francisco. Jewish, yeah. San Francisco Jewish Chronicle, it was called at the time, and uh, put the letter to the editor or whatever. We formed a group uh, that was uh, actually an organized group. Uh, with that we called Los Amigos Sefaradis, 
we chose a Spanish name so that it would be only for Latino speakers. And um, it was very successful. We got, um, we had many interesting events. We would meet once a, uh, once a month on mm -hmm. Sunday in each other, mostly in my home, but sometimes in other places. And uh, everybody would bring some food, but we also had some talk about our culture and so on. We were covered by this and uh, by the uh, Jewish Chronicle about the group. And uh, uh, soon we get, I get a letter. I was the president and I had a newsletter every month in two languages, English and Ladino. And um, uh, I received a, a, request, a letter from the Spanish consul in San Francisco that he wanted to come and speak to us. And he came and we knew that that would draw a lot of attention. He would speak in English. And uh, so we had the uh, meeting at the Magnus Museum. And that was the first time in 1985 or six that a Spanish a representative of the Spanish government apologized for his government uh, having expelled the Jews. He actually apologized. Yes, he said it was uh, an anomaly that the Spanish people don't uh, uh, made a big mistake by, uh, uh, you know, or that uh, it was very nice. You know, it was a very apologetic kind of speech wow. talking about how great the contribution of the Jews in Spain had been and so on. That's something to put on the books. That's yes, like... and, and I have the article still that appeared in the Jewish Chronicle about that. Then we had to move to, to Dallas because of my husband's job. And once again, I put a letter in the Jewish paper, in the Texas Jewish Post. Not and I met a few people, very oh. few people, yes. But just a few people here, and just we became friends. And again, one family was a survivor of the Holocaust. And, right. And, but it, there wasn't enough to do anything, and they weren't that interested. And so I didn't do anything here. But um, in 1999, I had always kept in touch with Israel, with everything that was going on in Israel. And uh, one uh, of my contacts in Israel was Moshe Shaul. Moshe Shaul, uh, he recently died, was a forerunner, really, of the movement to revive Ladino. And um, he was also originally from Izmir, from my town, but he had gone to Israel before the state. I didn't know him personally, but he was a distant relative by marriage, as it turns out. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in any case, uh, he used to, uh, Call Israel Radio at the time, used to have um, uh, a weekly um, program for mm -hmm. uh, Judeo-Spanol, as they call, called it. Uh, uh, and um, he was a speaker there. And from there, 
1979, way back, he started publishing like a quarterly review. And he, he tells the story about how that happened. But anyway, that's another story. I had always uh, subscribed to this. It was a, entirely in Ladino, this cultural review, very well-written articles, very interesting. And I used to contribute to those, to the, that publication. And then uh, in 1999, in Israel, they had uh, the Israeli government formed two uh, what they call authorities to preserve the, the Jewish languages of the Galut. Um, mm-hmm. one, one was um, for Yiddish and one was for Ladino. And the one for Ladino was called the Autoridad in Ladino, the Autoridad Nacionala del, del Ladino y su Cultura. That means the National Authority for Ladino and its culture. And it was uh, supported by, it was voted in uh, by the Knesset and supported by the Israeli government, both of these. for Yiddish, Where was it based? In Jerusalem. It was its own office in Jerusalem. Yes. And the president of the Ladino Authority was Yitzhak Navon, the fifth president of the state of Israel and the only Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jew that has been, has had that position. Yes. Uh, So anyway, Navon and um, Moshe Shaul together organized the first international conference for Ladino in Israel. And they, with the uh, focus on um, how to spell the Ladino language in Latin characters, because traditionally Ladino was written in Hebrew characters, and so um, specifically, mostly in the Rashi type of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this comes. Which isn't Rashi type, but we won't get into that now. <laughs> no, right. In any case, it's a variation of the Hebrew letters. And, but now, by then, everybody, nobody was using that. Everybody was using the Latin script, you know, the letters that we use for English. <laughs> and, uh, but there was no standardized form as to how to write it, you know, how to spell it. Everybody spelled it its own, his and her own way. Because, um, you know, if you were, uh, uh, if you were a Fran- French, uh, Francophile, as they say, you know, you spoke French, or you studied in French, you would spell Muncho with M-O-U-N-T-C-H-O, you know, and others would spell it in the Turkish way, which is the M-U-N-C with a Sadia and O, you know, several different ways. I have my, the letters of my mother, sometimes the same word is spelled three different ways in the same letter, you know. So there was no standardized form of spelling. And so different um, academics came from Spain and from Istanbul and from other places uh, to that conference in Israel. And Moshe uh, Shaul asked me to moderate one of the sessions there. That was a turning point for me because we voted as because uh, by then 
this publication that I mentioned, it's called Aki Yerushalayim, this is Jerusalem, from the way the radio used to be introduced, you know, the radio program saying, this is Jerusalem, <laughs> Aki Yerushalayim, that became the name of the publication also. So uh, Aki Yerushalayim had standardized its way of writing the articles in, in the Latin script. Moshe, in his concluding lecture, said, now that we have such a thing as the internet and many people have computers, we could start a correspondence group where we promote the standardized way, and we use and promote the standardized way of, uh, of spelling. I thought that was a good idea, but he didn't do anything. So when I came back, I asked a friend of mine, I had a new computer at the time, and, and I asked a friend, I said, how do you start a correspondence group? And he told me, he said, you know, it's very easy. Go to such and such a website and say, start a group. And so I asked some of my friends, some of my Ladino speaking friends, if I started this group, would you be, become members? And they said, oh, great idea, you know. And so we started in December of 1999. And I chose the name Ladino Comunita just the community of Ladino speakers kind of thing. And that thing, without any advertisement, just kept, the word kept spreading and spreading. And by the end of the first year, we had over a thousand people. And then we came, we came up to close to 1,700 people who, uh, not everybody would write, but what Wait. it is, is... Uh, is whoever would send us something we moderate because we we have to correct if they have mistakes in spelling or in something before we send it out but everybody gets whatever somebody wrote in you know the entire group gets it so this is still going on and we still get have about 1500 members and um, but of course over the years you know how many 20 four years now, from 1999, we still have uh, this many members, but fewer people write for several reasons. One is that the most of the native speakers have died, and the new ones are people who are curious or eager to learn, but they don't have the skills to write. And we also have a lot of competition now. There is WhatsApp groups, there is a, a publication, there is another, Aki Yerushalayim uh, uh, continues, this time digitally. Then we have a publication from Istanbul, which comes out once a month entirely in Ladino, and uh, Facebook groups and so on. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are other venues to write to. But still, we have a lot of members. And once I said, maybe, you know, it's time to close Latino Comunita. And I got so many objections. No, we don't write, but we read it. And, we, and it's true. If one day, you know, there's only one message, I, I get 
notice what's going on. Why the, why are there so few? Well, people, you know, are not writing as much as they used to. We used to get up to 20 mails a day, you know, it was a lot of reading, but we have a, um, we have a system or the website gives us a system. We have changed, by the way, the servers have changed. It used to be uh, Yahoo groups, then it's now it's something like groups.io. We are in groups.io. You go to groups.io and you search for Ladino Comunita. Perfect. And yeah. that's L-A-D-I-N-O-K-U. No, K-O. K-O. Munita. Yeah. It's very uh, phonetic. Ladino Comunita. You were mentioning that the writing has gone down and that the native speakers maybe are no longer around. And I wanted to know if you personally or how the transmission to the next generation goes. Did you teach your kids? Yeah. You hit them in a very uh, delicate subject. Uh, (laughs) But that is the problem. None of us taught our kids. Nobody. There are a few people trying to now, trying to teach their kids, but it's a big challenge. There's no community anymore. There's no Ladino speaking community. Most of the Ladino speakers, as I said, are in Israel. They do fantastic work there. There is an institute in Barilan University that was founded by a rich man from Turkey, Selim Salti. It's called the Salti Institute for Ladino Studies. Many young people are studying the language, but they're studying the language as you would study Latin, Latin texts, you know, the old texts. And it's not, there are, what there are in Israel are groups of aficionados, people who are interested in learning the language, you know, informal groups all over. But academically, it's mostly studying the old texts and writing about them and so on, publishing and so on in other languages. You know, uh, right. we have, right. yeah. And interestingly, um, the youngest people that we have who are learning the language via the internet and are very excited to learn it, they're mostly Spanish speakers and they're mostly non Jews. Wow. Let alone Sephardic. Let alone Sephardic. Yeah. Uh, a lot of non-Jewish Spanish speakers from all over the world. Some are Jewish, but not very few Sephardic people. You said almost nobody transmitted the language. Were there things in your house? I mean, you were married to an Ashkenazi, you raised your children in a very Ashkenazi neighborhoods. Was there something that you kept from your tradition that you gave to your kids? Oh, just the, some of the foods, some of the sayings, you know, like uh, if you sneeze, uh, they know to say beavers. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, they know a few things here and there. 
but uh, you know, a few sayings, but uh, mostly it's just the food. <laughs> you know, I felt such a such a stranger in the United States for a few for many yeah. years that I didn't want my children to feel that way. And my mother's visit was very short. I mean, she was with us six uh, six months, but she made an effort to learn some English, you know, during that time. Uh, uh, so she could speak with the grandchildren, you know, right. that was, you know, she died soon after that. So um, I, my kids had no exposure to really people speaking that language. Now they hear me more because now not only do we have Ladino Comunita, but we have groups that meet via Zoom just to chat in Ladino. And I go with twice a week. There's one that uh, people just get together. But it's not the same because most of those people don't know the language, you know, like people of my generation would, you know. They are learning it so... It's nice, you know, it's, I'm very happy about those. And then we have something that's more formal, that's wonderful, and that is every Sunday, we have what they, we call Encontros de Al-Had. Al-Had is our word for Sunday. You may be interested in this. We, we have the same names for the days of the week, except for Sunday, from, with Spanish, except for Saturday and Sunday. Saturday for us is always Shabbat. It's another, it's, uh, but Sunday is never Domingo. Uh, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, because uh, it has a Christian connotation. So, uh, so our word for uh, Sunday is Al-Had, which is from the Arabic. And it, they made it up in, in Spain yet. It, we didn't make it up after Spain. It was in Spain, the Jews uh, among themselves, they used the word al-hat, first day of the week, right? Exactly. So we have these encontros de al-hat, meetings on Sunday. Uh, every, uh, with my time, which is central standard time, 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, for me every Sunday and what we have is like a, is like a television talk show we have a host and we have a, a guest and the hosts uh, uh, change every week we have uh, I think it's 11 organizations each one has a host I represent Ladino Comunita and so I get to be the host once every 11 weeks or something like that. Um, and each host chooses a guest that he or she feels is, is interesting and people should know about this person, um, whether it's a, a singer or a, a researcher, or a, it could be anything, religious, theater actress, an opera star, you know, whatever that speaks Ladino. So uh, these are conducted entirely in Ladino. They take, uh, it's one hour uh, and plus questions, time for questions and answers, only in Ladino. 
that's every uh, every Sunday. So we have that, which is wonderful. And of course, like I said, there is this publication from Istanbul, it's called El Amanecer, which means the dawn, because we have a saying in Ladino, the darkest hour is brings the dawn. Cuando, cuando más escureces para el amanecer. That means the darker it gets, it's, you know, it's on, Towards it's the dawn. dawn. Yeah. So the, the publication is called El Amanecer. It's actually uh, a monthly supplement to the Jewish newspaper of Istanbul called Shalom. Shalom is a Jewish newspaper from Istanbul, but it appears in Turkish. The Shalom newspaper of Istanbul is in Turkish. It has one page in Ladino every week, one page. But uh, uh, the rest is all in Turkish, except for this monthly supplement, which started publication in 2005. And it's called El Amanecer. And uh, it's all in Ladino. And all these students of Ladino write articles for them. And, and of course, uh, they're... Uh, my two friends who edit it have to make all the corrections before it's published, you know, but still it's wonderful. Yeah. So there's a lot more now going on in Ladino than there were in the seventies and eighties and nineties. You know, That's amazing how technology can enhance some of the older languages in our old history. Yeah. Right. If, you, if there was one thing that you want to make sure the next generation knows or one thing you want to impart? I would like to, uh, to make sure that our culture does not die. There are some beautiful things, both about our language, the way it kept us Jewish over the centuries in our own world among the mostly Muslim milieu. This is a very unique and beautiful history. I hope will be appreciated by future generations forever. Of course, this, the songs I'm pretty sure will, will continue because the, you know, the Ladino songs keep getting to be more and more popular. Uh, I mean, by singers anyway. I want those new singers to make sure that they are pronouncing the songs right, that they know what they mean, and and the history behind them, and the culture that gave way to these songs. I'm afraid that some of the singers just either they they don't sing them. <laughs> Um, in the authentic way, let's say. They modernize them, which is fine, you know, it, but they should know that there's also an original, authentic version of those songs. Um, I'm very grateful that uh, the songs are getting well known, but the ones that are recorded and, uh, and performed are like one one hundredth, one percent of the ones that are, that used to be, and they have a collection of all of them in Israel. There are like thousands. There's an archive in Israel of uh, uh, thousands of songs that people sang. 
So, um, so the language will live in one way or another forever. One is through the music, uh, and one is for uh, the studies that are being done, academic and other studies by aficionados. Um, but it is changing, which is normal, they tell me. But me, in my generation, we want to connect to, to the old way that we used to. And, and um, the, the danger, uh, there are two sides to the fact that so many people are interested in learning it. One uh, is, of course, for the good one that the younger generation is interested. But uh, what worries me is the de-Judaizing of the language. In other words, there is a lot of the culture that is expressed in the language that is not applicable to non, non-Jewish speakers. I mean, it's not in their vocabulary at all. I mean, uh, you know, what, what time are you coming back from the tefillah? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I don't know. The, uh, we have sayings with el dio, el dio que tapiade, el dio que, you know, uh, wishes uh, and uh, even curses, you know, and, and ev- things, um, all the, of course, religious elements, uh, having, you know, the the tzitzit and the talet and the, you know, all these words that are part of our language, but are part of our religion is not going to continue. I tell everybody, don't forget, it is the Jewish people that not only developed this language, but the language kept us Jewish in a Muslim world, really mostly Muslim world. So those things have to be remembered. Yeah, I think it's also very important for you to give us that context, uh, especially as someone who grew up speaking the language. And I'd say even, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it also kept you Sephardi when you were in America, um, which is an an added element. Um, Thank you, that's exactly right. It kept me Sephardic. I get disturbed by Sephardic people who have become Ashkenaz. Ashkenazized. <laughs> make the word, make up the well, word. It works. <laughs> you know, that just gave up. I mean, just became like everybody else, including a rabbi who is a Sephardic rabbi, but is the rabbi of a reform synagogue, you know? Yes. The language keeps me Sephardic. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that up. I I really appreciate it, and I appreciate everything that you do to to keep it alive. Um, And I hope others who maybe, I know even if they're just starters, uh, if that's their way of connecting with their heritage, uh, I think... I think uh, some people have food. Like you said, your kids have food and some people might connect with it through the language. 
Um, so it's thanks to people like you that are making it still accessible. So I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your story with thank us. You. It's always a pleasure to do that. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation on our end. <laughs> yeah. Thank um, and you very so much. insightful. And thank you for everything that you do. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.